Well, now to the beauty of Tongariro National Park and its inhabitants, captured through the eyes of an artist. Desmond Bovey lived in France for 30 years, predominantly working as an art director, specialising in ecology and environmental interpretation. Upon returning home to Whanganui a decade ago, he was in search of a project to reconnect with Aotearoa New Zealand and worked on some environmental projects for Dock and Forest and Bird. Then the diversity of the central plateau captured him, and in particular an up-close encounter with a rare kareareya, New Zealand falcon. It inspired many sketches, and the result is Tongariro National Park, an artist's field guide. Desbobi's not only written it, but has done the 400 illustrations that grace the pages, capturing the landscapes, plants, animals, even the rock formations of the area. I spoke to Des yesterday. He talked me through his method. I'm actually um, mixing. Um, I'm not a, a pure watercolorist. I use a lot of watercolor. I use colored pencils. I use ordinary um, HB pencils, and sometimes I'll use uh, pastels just for highlights. And so how will this work? Will you sketch while you're in the field? What's, uh, you know, what, what's the process from, uh, I, I guess, uh, from start to finish in producing something as detailed as this? Well... It, it's all about walking, you know, like walking through the park. And, and, the, and sooner or later something will take my fancy. It might be a plant, um, particularly the alpine plants, which I didn't know. So what I would do was um, sketch any plant I didn't know. I would sketch and then I would go home and do the homework, look it up in books, find its name. Uh, but for the landscapes, uh, I did a pencil sketch in the field uh, and then I would go home and do a, a more a more refined sketch, but sometimes I kept the original sketch. You know, sometimes there's a kind of freshness in a pencil sketch, uh, so I would just think, oh, I'll add a bit of colour, and um, a few of those got into the books, and I think there's always a tendency with illustration to overcook your illustration, so I've always tried to underdraw um, to keep a kind of freshness. And so I get so mad at myself sometimes when I go too far. You know, it's really hard to know when to stop. It's interesting also, nature is imperfect. I'm just looking at these beautiful wizened trees. Yes, well, it's the wizened trees are wonderful. perfectly imperfect, yeah. right? Yes. It's not like it's, it's, everything's polished every morning yes. uh, and, and made to look perfect. But you're right, perfect imperfection, that's, that's mm. what you're looking for, yeah. Mm. And, and it gives a kind of authenticity. If you draw a branch like you think a branch should be, it's not really convincing. But if, if you incorporate all sorts of irregularities and eccentricities, it becomes more authentic. The other thing that occurs to me is that you are capturing a very unique landscape, and goodness, we're so blessed in this country with so many of them, but yes. this particular landscape. Yes. So you're not just looking at a tree or, um, you know, um, uh, what have I got here, a giant dragonfly, uh, how do I say that, kapukupuwai. Um you, you are wanting to give a sense of what's special about this landscape. And is that done by a, a, a different way of approaching the illustration? Yes, mm. yes. I think that um, it goes right back to a kind of professional deformity. When I worked in France, I worked with environmental agencies and government agencies uh, and um, nature associations. And my job was to interpret landscapes. 
And often those landscapes are quite modest. It might be just a quarry that has a few um, rare orchids. So my job was always to um, what the French call vulgarize, which means to make accessible uh, what's special about places. And that has taught me to look at landscapes uh, as more than landscapes, to look to try and look for the bones underneath, to see who lives there. The landscape is a holistic thing, you know. Vulgarise. What a wonderful word. I yeah, think we should do common. more vulgarising in life. <laughs> we could do <laughs> But I won't do it here. No, don't you? <laughs> but again, it's, it's that concept of... Um, it's the concept of looking for what's raw in some ways, isn't it? What's yes. raw and innate, yeah. yeah. There's plenty of that at Tongarara National Park. We must learn a little bit more about that background that brought you to this particular project because you were Hunganui born and um, born and bred, I think. But you had many years. You had decades in France. Yes, thirty years. Yes. Before you went, what was your um, what was your specialty here that's given you such a knowledge of ecology, for example, let alone well, art? Before I went, I, I didn't really have that knowledge. I learned that knowledge in France. I mean, I was always a, a kid that loved nature. I was always out in the hills. Um, but it wasn't until I came to France and I, my customers taught me such a lot. And the thing is about, you know, f- particularly French experts, but it might also be true for New Zealand experts, botanists and uh, geologists. and They, they know their, their, their subject and they love it and they're, they're really great people, but they're not very good at presenting it to a wider public. And that's where I was actually quite good. I could make quite complicated um, environments attractive. Is that a question of perspective, almost like depth of perspective sometimes, rather than the botanical perfection close-up? You, you can get really hung up on botanical perfection. Um, yeah, it's a, just about a holistic. You have mm. to look at a landscape holistically. And see what the eye sees, not not what you've seen when you've gone over it all under a microscope, but what the human eye sees, yes. which is a partly emotional response. Yes, it's certainly it? an emotional response, mm. but it's more than what the eye can see. In fact, the way you have to deconstruct a relationship. You have to say, you know, why is that hill that shape? Why is that rock red? You know, why are there trees on this side of the mountain and not on the other? So... I learned that was just my training was to to interpret because that's what the French call it interpretation. Uh, so I would look at a landscape and say, "Well, that's beautiful. I'd like to paint that." But it's not scenery; it wasn't scenery to me. Was, I had to deconstruct who lives here, why is it that shape, uh, uh, and all kinds of factors, particularly in Tongariro, come into play because you've got lahars, floods, eruptions. You've got it's a violent. Landscape. It's a powerful landscape. How does that recon? How does that deconstruction reconstruct on the page? Well, that was my job too. And if you flick through the book, you'll see that there Give are double. Well, in any almost any double page spread, because it works by double page spreads. There's almost always a landscape, and then. As vignettes around the landscape, you'll see who birds lives flying. there. Who birds flying. There. Birds flying. And these plants, these Those the plants, alpine tangle fern. Tangle fern and, and wire the wire rush. rush. Uh, so it's then, like you zoom in. Yes. You, you have the context yes. of the landscape and then you zoom in. Yes. And, and then I have floating captions, you know. So, And high, the floating captions like that are very highly read. They've got a very high readership. People won't necessarily plunge into the um, the, the bigger text. I think there's several lev- levels of readership. People will look at the, f- at the pictures, and that's fine. It's a picture book. But then they will also read the captions, and a few people will read the, um, the, the longer texts. 
And a few people might even read it from cover to cover, but it's not a book that needs to be read from cover to cover. So we're we doing some sort of French dining here as well, yes. and not too much, yes. just a little. The entree, yeah, the, <laughs> the portion yeah. size that French women yeah. apparently yeah. have that I've never mastered. Well, it's more of a it's more of a smorgasbord actually, mm. a buffet. You just go through mm. and you pick what you want. Mm. Whom, for whom were you working in, in France when you were doing this work? Uh, I, I I worked with France has so many levels of administration. You know, if you start at the bottom, you've All got the com- <laughs> <laughs> you've got the communal, uh, yeah. you know, which is the village often, mm. or the town, the municipal, and then you go up. You've got um, the deep departmental. And then you've got uh, the regional, and then you've got the state itself. And all of those agencies had. Um, Departments which treated um, environment, so I worked and associations too. Now these sites of natural interest that you worked on while you were in France, these were in a variety of European settings, were they? Yeah, mostly in eastern France was mm. my the, mm. uh, and central France, um, but also occasionally a job in in um, in, in other countries. Mm. Yeah. What brought you back to New Zealand? Well, I arrived at a kind of crossroads in my life. I was sort of sixty-ish. Um, I just, uh, a whole lot of things came together and I just thought, well, am I going to grow old in France or am I going to grow old in New Zealand? And it seemed to me that growing old in New Zealand was a kinder place. Um, Yeah, it it was a very, very hard decision to make Mm. because I left behind a language, which is part of my brain. And I left behind a group of friends, really good friends, you know, and I left behind my career. it was hard, yeah. And that's one of the reasons when I came back, which is, if there's a theme to this book, it's the theme of homecoming, and I had to reconnect. You know, I hired a car when I arrived in Auckland, and I drove down all through the Waikato and the King Country, and I was a little bit dismayed at all the greenness and how fenced off it was, you know, you, unlike France, where you can just walk on anybody's field. It was all fenced off, no trespassing, you know, and the greenness sort of hurt your eyes a little bit. Uh, so I was looking forward to the volcanic plateau. I was looking forward to what I thought of as the authentic colours of the volcanic plateau. Did you plateau. do a bit of a roadie or something? Yeah, it was yeah. a little roadie, yeah. Mm. But a roadie of rediscovery, you know, and you know what it's like when you go to a new country. There is about 24 hours when you have new eyes. You step off a plane and you see things really clearly. 24 hours later, it's gone. So let's talk about what inspired this particular book in this particular place. Uh, There's a a moment uh, I've read you talking about, an encounter uh, with a kararea. Where did this happen and what was its role in you finding that connection again? Well, its role was surprisingly important, actually. Um, And I have to be careful here. I don't want to sound too flaky, but uh, it was on my way from Auckland to Whanganui. You have to drive past National Park. Uh, and I decided I'd go for a little walk along the Wakapa, the Wakapapa ET track. And I looked, there was this boardwalk crossing uh, a kind of marshlands, a heathland. And I looked up, and there on a track post was a kariria, the falcon. And it was so still, and it was so close, and it was just looking at me. And I fumbled for my camera, and of course I couldn't get my camera out in time, and the bird slid away. But um, I felt in some strange way that this was important. I mean, people who love birds will know what I'm talking about. Sometimes you have these encounters that seem almost 
Well, it's just part of your own personal mythology. You know, I thought I was... I'm, the bird was looking at me and it seemed to be saying, what took you so long? And I went back. I knew at that moment that I'd, that I'd been right to come back and that there was a whole world that I had to rediscover. So I went back to my car and with a biro, I just did a sketch of this um, Carreria on a, on a trackside post and that was the genesis of the book. Had you been sketching much upon your return before that moment? Well, it was only it was less than twenty four hours after my Goodness, return. Goodness, the twenty four hour window. Yeah, yeah the twenty four hour window. Yeah. yeah. So that was the first sketch. Yes. And then where did it lead you? Well, it didn't. I never sat down and said, "I'm going to do a book." I just, I'm just a compulsive sketcher. I mean, I draw almost every day, so I, but I kept going back to the park. And I accumulated a pile of papers, you know. And, and after a while, I thought, well, what am I going to do with all these papers and notebooks? Is this a book? What is it? And if it is a book, what kind of book is it? Uh, so it took really a year, more than a year, before I finally it finally began to take shape as a book. Let's talk about some of the, the, the key moments in it, and then we'll perhaps look at some species or some favourites of yours as um, well. Uh, but the Rangapo Desert, I think, was another impact because having started your exploration of this landscape, you're then going deeper and deeper and seeing more and more. Tell us a little more about the Rangapo Desert and, and how this might be an example of how you experience and then how you deconstruct and and share that experience. Well, it's a very good example. Um, because I grew up in Wanganui, we tend to... We know the, the western side of the um, volcanic plateau very well. We hardly ever have occasion to take the uh, desert road. But um, the desert road, for many people, it's just a place to get to, to go through to get to somewhere else, whereas I began to see the desert road as a destination in itself and a very powerful place. It, it's, it's a landscape of incredible violence, st- a kind of static violence. But it's all there, you know, the lahars, the, the, vol- the repeated volcanic reaction, uh, eruptions, the layers, and very, very beautiful, you know. And that was a, a, an example that you, that, you, that you see that and you begin to explore that. There's also a yes. sparseness. Yes. There's oh, yes. an extraordinary um, depth and variety of... of um, flora and fauna in this part of the country, but there's a sparseness as well, mm-hmm. right? How does one capture that? Yes, it's very hard, but it's part of the magic of the Rangapo Desert. There are so few species actually. Mm. Um, it's very dry, it's very hostile, huge winds. It gets as much rain as Wellington, which doesn't really qualify it as a desert. But it was blasted. The whole area was blasted by the Tongariro, by the um, Taupo eruption almost 2,000 years ago. So all life, in a few, in the space of a few minutes, all life was blasted off that area, all the way to Wairu, uh, and it never fully recovered. It's an area that can't quite catch a break. It's constant eruptions from Rupehu and Narahoe, and then Lahars and floods scouring it out. Uh, but the species that managed to survive there are very, very interesting. You know, you have to hunt for them, but they're there. It has its own beauty. I recall oh, making yes. a comment about the barrenness of a desert, and um, a correspondent who'd lived in Australia for a long time wrote it and said, "No, that's not barren. It's no. it's not barren in terms of the the ecosystem. It's visually barren to a human. It's not barren, and it's not barren in terms of the experience. And you can't catch a break, you say, of that area. Yeah. But those who love it 
probably wouldn't change <laughs> that component of it, right? No. The no. sense of being uncrowded, the sense of being high. As I know well. the sense of space, the yeah. scale, but and also to Maori, it was it was quite a tapu area. You had to observe protocol if you wanted to cross that area, and quite a few people died. So when you began this, the, the project of beginning to record these, and then ultimately decide what was in and what was out. Is this essentially just a record? It's more than that, but you know, essentially recorded by just a series of journeys in there. Yes. And how would you choose what to focus on? It is that free spirited. I'm going to go here today. No, it it's was, planned. No, it was never planned. No, no, no. Does that you can be? Some of the landscapes that I chose were quite ordinary, uh, and it's, it's a rather I enjoy drawing ordinary places. There's enough spectac- spectacle in, in Tongariro National Park, those great lofty peaks, you know. And when the clouds come along from time to time and you, you're saved from looking at those beautiful peaks and you start looking at the foreground and the foreground is actually very, very interesting. But if, if I was walking along and, you know, a long-tailed cuckoo flew over and it was screeching away and that moved me, I would draw that spot, you know, I would draw the long-tailed cuckoo. The and when you're out walking, I think people will understand this. There's these, these moments of calm wonder when you find yourself for once in the right place at the right time. And that's what I tried to, um, I tried to express. And I also just thought, damn it, I'm going to please myself in this book. After a career of being an illustrator for other people, I just wanted to please myself. And sometimes in pleasing yourself, you please others. Des Bovey, our guest. The book is Tongariro National Park, an artist's field guide. You're listening to Nine to Noon with Catherine Ryan on RNZ National. Here's a beautiful example of what you were talking about earlier, of having the landscape. Now, that looks to me like it's Ruapehu, is it, that mountain yes. there? Um, and that, is that Narahoe? Yes. Which, of course, you can famously, from the right place, not too far from your hometown, you can see all three on a, no, on a good we day. No, we can only see Ruapehu from... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, really? I was yeah. trying to think it's the blue duck, isn't it? Up, up the hill. Um, yeah, I think yeah, they can catch the hill all three. Them, yeah, 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 yeah. So, anyway, back to this. We've got this beautiful landscape, and what you've got is the tussock quite dense in the um, background here beneath the mountain, but then we zoom in on uh, red tussock, is it? Red, it's mostly red tussock. Which, of course, is just, again, we take it for granted. It's mm. just fundamental to this mm. area. It's like, oh, we're walking through the tussock. When do we stop mm-hmm. for a cup of coffee? Give this as an example of something special, and it's special to this area, and um, then we might delve into some other sure. of the specialty well, detail. What's very special about that area, and it's it's quite accessible actually. Um, it's there's a road that goes off towards a, a private ski uh, club ski field on the um, on the um, desert road, and if you pull in and just park there, that's where they, I did that drawing, and the plants there are pedestal plants. You've got small colonies of plants that hug together and the winds are so savage that they just strip away all, all the um, organic soil uh, and the only the plants are left perched on these pedestals, sometimes, you know, a metre, a metre or two high. Um, so that's what I tried to draw in that, for, in that um, illustration, just how tough a place it was and how hard the plants just have to cling to life. Uh- Right next to it, in one of these little breakouts we were talking about it, we've got the whip called Hebe, um, uh, the Koromiko, beautiful Koromiko there, but there's a little banded dotterel. I would not yes. have placed a banded dotterel no, here. That's one of What's the it doing things. there? Yeah, that's what a lot of people... Well, it's a, usually a coastal nesting bird. It, um, 
But for some reason, a few couples, not very many, I think, will, will nest on the Rangapo Desert, um, which is one of the reasons I get so angry when I see people, four-wheel drive people, roaring around there when they're not supposed to. But it nests there, a hardy little bird. It's probably smaller than a blackbird. Uh, and then at the end of the season, some of them just get up and fly to Australia. And in fact, uh, in Australia, where they thought it, they never knew where it nested. It was a mystery. And then they finally found out that they were flying across the Tasman to nest in New Zealand, part of the population, not all of it. What are some others that you would highlight? Um, I mean, you've got some insect life in here as well. Rocks. We'll come back to the rocks. Get rocks. finger in that page. Mm. Uh, but what's, you know, what are some of the insect life that were either challenging to draw or that people just might not know about? Yeah. The, um, what I found particularly fascinating was the um, grasshoppers, uh, well above the bush line, right up to um, almost the snow line, um, and there's, a, there's there's hundreds of them. You know, you, as you walk across the the, the fell field, uh, they'll sort of flick up around your feet, but they're very hard to um, get a good look at. You know, and some of them are so beautifully camouflaged. There is a, a an alpine grasshopper which is either bright bright green or a lichen um, stone coloured. So you know they they have a bob both ways. If if they perch on stone, they become invisible. Really, they're like a chameleon. Yeah, yeah. but but they've got the two choices, you yeah. know, and they and they both seem to coexist and, and intimate, of course, the same I've species. Just come across a little pity wire here. The mayfly they're great for fly fishing, aren't they? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, we'll move on from there. What what else would you pick? The prairie moth is a is a, everybody's favourite. A beautiful bird. A bird. A beautiful. Um, Moth. Moth with green, mossy wings. Yeah. Uh, something from having continued to have a flock. Let's have a look at the rocks because this is one um, really interesting page here. Yes, that's one of my favourite pages because. I, How have you told this story? Well, that story is a story of obsession, actually, because I, I, I started looking at the lava flows on Narahoe as you walk up the Mangatipopo. Valley, which is the beginning of the Tongariro crossing, tends to get overlooked because people's have got people have got their eyes riveted on the peaks ahead. But that valley is actually very, very interesting, and you do, people don't realise it, but you're crossing a whole series of lava flows. That valley was very deep once, scoured out by um, glacier, and then filled up with all this rock regurgitated from um, Narahoe. Uh, and as you move further and further up the valley, they become fresher and fresher. But I began looking at the slopes of um, Narahoe, and I thought, which you know, which flow is that, and what date? And then I got one of those mini obsessions, you know, that you can get. Whereas I spent a whole week on that, just working out which flows were which. And then I th- kept thinking, well, no one really cares, you know. It's only me who cares. But oh, it's fascinating. So you've literally mapped like the pre. Thopal yes. lava flow, older than yes. 1,800 years, yeah. and then you've marked where, oh, what have we got here? There's a couple of others. 1949 is another key date. Yes. 1975, another key date. Yeah. Uh, but also just to look at a rock formation. And again, yes. this is where you bring your eyes. Your You're eyes. not just walking over a bunch of rocks. Yeah. <laughs> no. yeah. But the thing is about Naraho is very interesting because it generally erupted every nine years. Maori oral history confirms this, and European written history confirms it. And then in 1975, it stopped, which is a rather ominous, um, because it may mean that the vent is blocked. We Mm. don't know. Wow. But I'm sure it hasn't said its last word. 
what of the trees um, and their role in uh, the landscape as well? Because we've talked about the sparseness, but there are places where there are, um, you know, this forest, uh, oh, yes. forest of, of significance. What, let's just pick one of those to finish. Right. The the the, the, the big forests, the, the broad-leaved um, podocarp forests, are all in areas that were protected from the great Taupo blast. So they're all on the western side or the southern side of um, Rupehu and Pihanga. Mm, I've just found snow, no moss here now. Yeah, that's this up the Bruce Road just before you come to the ski village. Yeah. And this is the snow tortora, which grows in ground-hugging mats. Yes, it's a tiny totara, and it will actually hybridise with the, you know, the huge totara. Really? It? Yeah. And what do you get then? You get a medium-sized <laughs> totara. Um, the impact of the snow line does that have a? Mind you, the snow yes. line from Desert Road, it's, it's, it's not you're not really below it for the yeah. most part, are you? But of course, there's technically a snow line, and does that yeah. have quite a sharp um, well, impact? You, that particular page deals with that zone of. Um, Spending probably a month or two under snow every year in a normal year, um, the plants are adapted. The, uh, it's called a fell field, um, which is a funny word because I think fell is a very ancient word for field. So you're just really saying field, field, field. field. Um, but it's very interesting, very interesting habitat. Where are you at now that this completed? Is it an ongoing kind of... Have you sated, sated your um, <laughs> obsession and are you on to another one, or is it ongoing? Well, you know, a month or so ago I would have said I've sated it, you know, and I'm, but mm, the itch to draw... The, the things that I love writing and I love drawing, you know, and um, those two skills in this book come together. But you're based on Whanganui with that beautiful architecture and the river running through it yes. and, and all its yes. um, beauty as well. Do you yeah. think you might shift to another subject potentially? If I shifted to another subject, you know the one that I would shift to is the um, Wellington Southern Coast? It, because a lot of these land birds and species, you know, they're present in Tonga National Park, but they're also present in the Wanganui River Valley, so there would be a lot of repetition. Whereas the seabirds... The seals, the petrels, the albatross, the, the rock formations, the rock formations. Yes, the landscapes, and all the way, all right the way through up to Mana Island. We'll talk again in a couple of years when you've done that one. Okay, Catherine. <laughs> Desmond Bovey and his book is Tongariro National Park, an artist's field guide. It's published by Popham and Burton and costs $40.